0: The CNBC app. Global market news in one place. Customizable sections and
1: personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected. Stay informed. Download the CNBC app today.
0: Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program this Monday morning. Let's give you your headlines. China confirms more than 2,000 new cases of coronavirus. The death toll climbing to more than 1,700. Hubei province bans all vehicle traffic and France reports the first death outside Asia. Chinese stocks jump meanwhile as the People's Bank of China cuts its medium term lending rate by 10 basis points. This in an effort to curb the economic impact of the virus.
2: Recession fears rise as Japan's GDP contracts by more than 3% in the fourth quarter. And Bank of Japan Governor Kuroda says the coronavirus is the top risk facing the world's third largest economy. Airbus says it deeply regrets a U.S. decision to hike tariffs on European-made aircraft as the White House Trade Office raises the stakes in the 15-year-long dispute over subsidies.
3: And the United States warning other countries against doing business with Huawei, with U.S. Secretary of Defense Mark Esper telling me in an exclusive interview that the United States is already spending hundreds of millions of dollars to find a 5G alternative.
4: We need to be able to access data at the speed and volume of relevance to warfighting. And if we can help, uh, help commercial vendors get there, it helps us. It also helps uh, the, the, the marketplace.
0: Chinese authorities have reported almost 2,000 new cases of coronavirus and 100 new deaths. It takes the total death toll now to nearly 1,800. The rise in new cases reverses two days of relative declines over the weekend. The 380 American nationals, meanwhile, who've been quarantined on the Diamond Princess cruise ship off the coast of Japan, have disembarked after two weeks. They were put on charter flights returning to the US. Around 40 Americans tested positive for the virus and will remain in Japan. Europe has seen its first fatality after an 80-year-old Chinese tourist died in France. Egypt also confirmed a case of coronavirus, the first in Africa. A speech by Chinese President Xi Jinping suggests the country's top leadership knew about the dangers of the COVID-19 coronavirus at least two weeks before being made public. In the speech, which was published by state media on Saturday, she said he began giving orders on how to combat the virus on January the 7th. However, officials only revealed the virus could spread between humans in late January. Several authorities in Hubei, the epicentre of the virus, have been criticised and dismissed over their handling of the outbreak. Well, the People's Bank of China has responded to economic threats with a cut to its medium-term lending rate. This, as it scrambles to ease the economic fallout from the virus, the move will lower the interest rate on 200 billion yuan worth of loans to financial institutions. Analysts expect the bank to announce further easing measures later this week. Uh, Let's get out to Sherry, who's with us now from Hong Kong. And how's the market reacting to this Sherry, given that they have to balance these uh, stimulative measures with the announcement of fresh virus cases?
5: Well, they're not exactly asking that kind of long-term, you know, perspective questions at this point. For the day, they're really uh, very much enjoying that uh, you know the PBOC's a cut to when it comes to that one-year lending facilities, because this is basically giving the market what they've been betting on for some time now. And as you pointed out, uh, you know, some of the market participants are actually, you know, raising the possibility of the PBOC, you know, tinkering with that LPR rate, loan prime rate, uh, later this week. In fact, that decision is actually due out on Thursday as well. This comes as a lot of Chinese officials, uh, you know, foreign ministry, finance minister, Uh, they are actually coming out with this party line that this epidemic is controllable and we're going to protect uh, China's economic progress and we're not going to let COVID-19 hurt that kind of growth. And in fact, we did see that uh, magazine, uh, Communist Party's flagship magazine and uh, finance minister of the country uh, wrote a column talking about the possibility of corporate tax cuts down the road as well. So really, the market is seeing uh, China really going all out there to shore up uh, the economy and protect uh, the economy from the negative impact from the coronavirus. And of course, as you can see, green across the board pretty much. But interesting case how the Hang Seng Index here in Hong Kong is sort sort of a laggard despite that interest rate cut when it comes to, um, you know, MLF. This comes as Hong Kong's financial secretary is talking about tsunami-like shocks to the Hong Kong's economy because this is a different story for that territory because there is already that negative impact coming from months-long protests and then to top it all off, coronavirus impact. So uh, Paul Chan, the financial secretary, also talked about the possibility of record of a budget deficit for the next fiscal year. So Hang Seng Index uh, is gaining, but just about 0.6%. In the meantime, a couple of, um, you know, sectors that we need to talk about as well. Uh, China's uh, new um, home prices came out uh, this morning for the month of January. So very, um, you know, interesting sector to watch because this is already very much highly leveraged sector. And Chinese authorities have been trying to take some of the froth out of this sector. But at this point, uh, their mission is really about protecting the economic progress and growth there. So I think this is going to be a challenging sector to keep that balancing act. So we do see a negative picture across the board, pretty much, because uh, uh, the uh, new home prices actually came in at a two-year low. But Evergrande, for example, is higher outperforming because the company actually started selling the price properties online and they are seeing some progress on the front as well. So certainly, uh, Jeff, uh, changing the behavior of home buyers in China due to the coronavirus outbreak. Back to you. Sherry, thank you so
2: much for bringing us the latest on the all-important uh, coronavirus and the implications over in Asia. And meanwhile, I want to bring you some, uh, some uh, commentary from a key conference that took place over the weekend. The West is winning. That was the message U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo had for delegates at the Munich Security Conference as he sought to reassure European allies over President Trump's America First policy. Pompeo was responding to criticism from Germany's president, who warned that Washington had rejected the concept of international cooperation. The U.S. Secretary of State also said the so-called demise of NATO was grossly exaggerated. Pompeo and U.S. Secretary of Defense Mark Esper also hit out at China, with Esper accusing Beijing of carrying out a nefarious strategy through Huawei. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi rejected the accusations from the American officials.
0: They have been once again repeating their smears and criticism of China and it has become a common scenario. They basically say the same thing wherever they go about China and I don't want to waste our time responding to each and everything they've said. I can generally say that these accusations against China are lies. They are not based on facts.
2: Well, Hadley now joins us from Dubai. Hadley conducted a series of those key interviews at the Munich Security Conference. Hadley, is it fair to say through your conversations with the U.S. delegation that China is a top concern for the administration?
3: No doubt about it, Juliana. And we thought it was really interesting, frankly, that the Americans seeming to try and shift the narrative, uh, U.S. Secretary of State, Mark Pompeo, U.S. Defense Secretary, Mark Esper, as well as the Energy Secretary, all there, the biggest allegation that we've seen from the United States, frankly, in several years now, the Munich Security Conference, of course, an opportunity uh, for international leaders, but with NATO leaders really at the fore there having conversations about the future of the West and what that actually looks like, not just NATO, but frankly, more globally, how Western influence uh, can be used for a source of you know, good and stability. One of the conversations, of course, that we had the chance to conduct was an exclusive interview with the U.S. Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper. I asked him about uh, the comments that we heard from the delegation more broadly with regards to China. They said that China and Russia were the biggest threats to global stability and to the Western way of life. I asked him to weigh in, listen in.
4: What I mean is what I outlined in my speech earlier today, and that is uh, as, as we look at our national defense strategy, it says that we are now in this era of great power competition and uh, that means we be, need to focus more on high-intensity warfare going forward. And our long-term challenges are China number one and Russia number two. And what we see happening out there is a China that continues to grow its military strength, its economic power, its commercial activity, and it's do, doing so in many ways uh, uh, illicitly or it's, uh, it's, it's using the international rules-based order against us to to continue this growth, to acquire technology, and to uh, do the things that really undermine our, our nation's, I say that plural, sovereignty, uh, that undermine the, the rule of law, that, uh, that really question their commitment to human rights.
3: When we talk about what happens next within the 5G space, mm-hmm. a lot of investors, and frankly, a lot of governments uh, say to us, you know, listen, if there was a better, cheaper alternative to Huawei, We'd be using it. But unfortunately, that just doesn't seem to be the case. What is the U.S. government planning to do to get U.S. companies there?
4: Well, we need to do our part, not just with U.S. companies, but with uh, European companies. There are some Asian companies and we need to make sure that we provide an affordable, competitive alternative. But at the same time, we just can't be duped uh, into a, uh, a company that's subsidized by the Chinese government that has cl- ties, close ties to the Chinese Communist Party and allow them into our networks and compromise them. Because wh- what it will do is it will undermine our security. It will undermine our ability to exchange information and intelligence and to do th- all those things we need, need to do to guarantee the security of our countries and the security of our peoples.
3: How much money are you willing as the Pentagon to put behind that kind of technology
4: well we're putting hundreds of millions of dollars behind it right now by running test beds at several of our bases where we invite commercial vendors in uh, we open up the community if you will I can I can uh, put aside unnecessary regulation that inhibits the testing and we can really help companies grow in a partnership with DOD because it enables us too. we need to be able to access data at the speed and volume of relevance to warfighting and if we can help uh, help commercial vendors get there it helps us it also helps Uh, the the, the marketplace.
3: So pretty fascinating stuff coming there from the U.S. Secretary of Defense in that exclusive interview, essentially saying we're willing to spend and are spending hundreds of millions of dollars in terms of test beds that would allow American companies, Western companies, to really work on a technology that would be a suitable, viable, perhaps cheaper alternative uh, to Huawei. But at the same point, I mean, this is a gentleman, Mark Esper, remember, that comes from the military-industrial complex. He understands how difficult it is uh, to get a prototype to market and how long that takes and how uh, complex that can be, frankly. So this is someone who really understands uh, the pipeline, as you, if you will, uh, when it comes to the U.S. technology getting through you know, the Pentagon in terms of spending, in terms of uh, folks in Congress being able to sign off on that as part of that national defense strategy. But he seemingly was suggesting there that they're working on it and that their timeline is shortening. But at this point, guys, still no alternative that the United States can suggest to those who are looking at Huawei as a real opportunity.
0: Terrific. Hadley, thank you very much indeed for that. Let's bring in Moritz Kramer, Chief Economic Advisor at Accreditus. Moritz, good morning to you. Um, what we've listened to there is a catalogue of woe around the US's relationship with China, concerns about technology, a focus on how America is resurgent and beating its chest about its role in leading the Western world. What we didn't hear so much of is where is the EU in this game? What is Germany's responsibility as a leader for Europe? All of this, it seems to me, just continues to um, put pressure on the EU and the single currency. I'd appreciate your thoughts here because there are a lot of people scratching their head and asking why the um, euro is actually continuing to weaken at this point.
1: Oh, for the euro, there are a number of uh, pretty good reasons why it has weakened. I mean, it has depreciated around 3% this year. If you look at it at a at a sort of um, currency basket, it's almost at the lowest of five years. And, and much of it has happened in recent weeks. I think the two Key areas: one is political, one is economical. Clearly, the economic data coming out of Europe has been disappointing. Um, so we had terrible sort of industrial production numbers for December after what people thought was a stabilization. The GDP uh, for for the fourth quarter was basically a stagnation. The forward-looking indicators, high-frequency indicators, are pretty weak as well. So you know, for 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 the future, we, you know, you would see growth in the eurozone so a little bit more than one percent. Which is about half of what you would expect in the U.S. But the second area is political, and that's a little bit more new, um, and that sort of sort of links to what we just heard from from Munich. Um, Europe's political landscape is, you know, full of uncertainties. It's, uh, you know, the, the center seems not to hold properly. I mean, the latest. Shock was, of course, what happened in Germany with the resignation of AKK as a chancellor candidate. Mm -hmm. Um, So, totally open uh, what is going to happen there next. So, there's after just one coalition partner resolved its leadership crisis, the next one is starting. In all the meantime, there's little governing going on. But you look in other countries as well, you have an unstable government in Spain, you have the typical sort of political instability in in Italy, uh, even in France, sort of, you know, there is there is concern that that you know that, that Macron gets sort of increased competition. Can he can he regain the presidency against uh, Le Pen next time? There's Brexit, you know, with the hard Brexit at the end of the year back on in the pictures. So There's lots of uncertainties in Europe. Um, very little leadership. Whereas in the US, you no, know, you have the impeachment is gone. And sort of much of the of, of the cloud or surrounding that has disappeared. So this has strengthened the dollar. This has weakened the euro. Many of those factors will probably persist. And then there's the coronavirus, mm. right, which. Um,
2: I think Jeff's initial question is so important, and one of the comments that came out of the Munich conference stuck out for me uh, from the EU's foreign policy chief, that Europe has to develop an appetite for power. And over the last year, when a number of these uh, geopolitical crises have emerged, Europe has been a little bit in the backseat reacting to the take from the US or, or China or whatever it may be. Do you think the current leadership in Europe has the appetite for Europe to play a bigger role on the international stage?
5: Well,
1: it depends who you're thinking about. Macron does, for sure. And he's making that quite clear. And he says he's not frustrated with Germany's reluctance to go along, but clearly he is frustrated. Um, And uh, and why wouldn't he? So Germany, which is the biggest economy and the biggest country in Europe, has um, traditionally been very reluctant to play that leadership role, the reluctant hegemon, for, for historical reasons I think we can all understand. But the world is changing um, around us so just relying um, sort of sitting on the couch and, and you know hoping for the americans to do our bidding in europe is no longer a possibility then you have britain which was sort of another country which is willing to take sort of international roles leaving the eu that's another sort of you know leader sort of in that sense dropping off so there's much more much more pressure on Germany in particular to step up to the plate and nothing suggests that this is going to happen in the foreseeable future, not with this current government, which is very much involved with itself. And um, after an election, whenever it comes, um, we'll have to assume that there will be a coalition uh, with the Green Party, which uh, for a number of, of, of reasons is also very reluctant, partly because it was under their foreign minister, Joschka Fischer at the time, that you know, the first sort of airstrikes on Kosovo and Serbia were launched in the Balkan war. They're still sort of very much torn around this. So I don't really see this changing in the foreseeable future. I think the, the political ability of Europe to re- unite around like military issues um, is not very promising.
0: Moritz, you're going to stay with us. We'll come back. Uh, you raised the question of what happens around coronavirus, so we'll get to that as well. We'll get some thoughts from you on that. And maybe we'll talk a little bit about where there's weakness in growth in other parts of the world as well, because we've seen a, a really poor GDP number out of Japan. Um, Singapore also warning growth will suffer amid the coronavirus outbreak. We're going to talk about that when we come back.
2: And if you just can't get enough of Squawk Box, be sure to tune into our very own podcast. Head to CNBC.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast to have a listen and download today's episode. And for our listeners, stick around for more. Welcome back to Squawk Box. Let me give you a look at where things left off in the U.S. Uh, On Friday, Wall Street uh, logged a second week of gains. The NASDAQ and the S&P 500 ending in positive territory on Friday. For the week, the NASDAQ ended 2.2% higher. The S&P 500 ended 1.6% higher. The Dow ended in slightly negative territory on Friday. But again, for the week, that index ended about 1% higher. So despite the coronavirus concern, Investors shrugging those off and instead looking to continued central bank liquidity uh, and earnings to support the bull case for U.S. stocks. So uh, a positive week again for Wall Street. Well, let's take a look at the commodities. Uh, let's start kick off with oil. Brent and WTI stabilizing this morning. Brent around the $57 per barrel mark. WTI $52 a barrel. So some stabilization coming through in oil markets as investors continue continue to assess the potential economic fallout from the coronavirus. Gold, meanwhile, trading about 15 basis points lower right now at 1581. The demand for gold, interestingly, strengthened just alongside the strength we saw in US equities. So perhaps a little bit of a barbell strategy taking place when it comes to investing. Let's take a look at opening calls. What this all means for Europe this week, we are, are looking at the EU EU summit taking place in Brussels where leaders will be negotiating the region's budget. We've also got some data coming through on the UK uh, inflation retail sales front, and then we've got PMIs for the end of the week. So a lot on the data front coming through. Uh, To kick things off this morning, we're looking at green across the board. FTSE 100, DAX, CAC 40, and FTSE MIB all looking at a green start to this Monday morning. Jeff?
0: Thanks very much indeed. Uh, Let's pick up then and talk about some of these GDP numbers. Singapore has warned it may plunge into recession this year after reporting its biggest jump in new coronavirus cases so far. The city-state cut its growth forecast for this year by one percentage point, highlighting the risks from the fast-spreading illness. The Japanese economy has contracted at its fastest pace in six years amid soft global demand and a sales tax hike. Uh, fourth quarter GDP fell by 6.3% on an annualised basis, much more than forecast and the first decline in five years. That's as the outlook for the current quarter, is clouded by coronavirus. Bank of Japan Governor Haruhiko Kuroda said the outbreak is currently the biggest uncertainty for the Japanese economy. Moritz Kramer is with us, Chief Economic Advisor at Accreditus. Uh, Moritz, are we going to see further stimulative action then, do you think, uh, from some of these Asian central banks, given I think the PBOC has given us a lead here, with another rate cut overnight
1: yeah no i think you might see some uh, further loosening is sort of concentric cycles uh, from away from china um i think it will be quite some time before any of this would would be affecting the fed or the ecb i think the distance is is too high but it's clearly the case that europe is is much more um at risk than the US, and partly because it's much more open. It's, it's sort of much more trade dependent on, on China. Uh, it's been growing its, uh, its exports to China by 170% in the last uh, uh, decade or so. And Germany exports like 3.5% of its GDP to China, which is comparable to its exports to France, which is next door neighbor. Um, the, f- the share of the US is, is, is a fraction of that. It's a much more closed economy. So I think there's much more at stake for Europe, and the EU specifically, and Germany very specifically, which is another one of those drivers about what we talked about earlier, the weaker Europe, because investors, of course, realize that there's more at stake in Germany, in Europe, than there is in the U.S. at this point.
2: Now, if, if global supply chains are affected by what's going on with coronavirus, which inevitably they will be, what does this mean for inflation across the Asian region?
1: Uh, well, I think it is already happening cross-border as so supply chain dis- disruption. We, we're probably going to see, see more of that as this drags on. I think what doesn't help is that you know these revisions of data of new cases makes it a little bit more blurry, the pictures or the confidence that this is sort of peaking now. It is, it's a little bit um, sort of waning because we, we just need to wait and see a little bit more. But the longer this goes on, the supply chain disruptions will grow probably exponentially because you know what the little things that you had stored are going to be depleted, um, and, and then again you'll have to, to to look at sort of which sectors are particularly um, exposed. And I would think from the data that I have seen that again sectors like the automotive sector, including in in, in Europe. Um, um, ha- has a lot, lot to run on this uh, because they take a lot of components from China and, uh, you know, the components aren't there and just-in-time production, then production's got to stop.
0: Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or
3: join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.